Hi, this is R. Scott Baker, the author of The Great Ordeal, and you're listening to the Grim Tidings Podcast. Today's guest is an author of seven critically acclaimed novels, including The Prince of Nothing, a trilogy that Publishers Weekly calls a work of unforgettable power, as well as the Aspect Emperor series and the thriller Neuropath. His latest novel, The Great Ordeal, book three in the Aspect Emperor series, dropped July 12th from the Overlook Press. Currently residing in London, Ontario, a student of history, philosophy, literature, and ancient languages, a husband, a father, and a staple author in our beloved grimdark subgenre. The Grim Tidings podcast proudly welcomes Mr. R. Scott Baker to the show. Scott, thanks for joining us. Thank you, guys. It's a pleasure to have you, sir. Fans are delighted to hear that you are coming on the show to uh, talk about uh, your newest novel, The Great Ordeal. We do have a copy of the book to give away at the end of the show, so listeners will want to stay tuned for the end of the program. We are going to have a hookup for a copy of the book. So uh, lots of exciting things to talk about today. I suppose, Scott, we will dive in. Uh, For the first question, of course, we want to talk about your newest book, The Great Ordeal is the third book in the Aspect Emperor series. If you could just give us a a little preview of what readers can expect from this newest installment in the series, sir. Um, The Great Ordeal basically takes all the illusions uh, uh, of uh, the larger, darker world and uh, lays them on the reader's lap. Um, The Great Ordeal is where the proverbial shit hits the fan. You know, for people who aren't you know into the series i'm sure that's going to be a spectacularly uninformative uh <laughs> pitch for the book but for people who uh, have been following the series i'm sure i'm sure that that's going to actually ring a lot of bells um i i've been very stingy revealing the details of my world over the years and uh i, I wanted the reveals uh, of the world to uh, parallel the reveals in the narrative, and this is this is where things really start coming together. And reviews of the book are already amazing. Uh, people are are clamoring about uh, this this latest installment. Are very pleased with 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 your latest offering. And you mentioned uh, about uh, current readers, but for new readers who aren't familiar with your series, how would you explain the series to to a new reader? To a new reader. Um, I guess most generally, I guess it would be like Lord of the Rings meets Anne Rice meets Friedrich Nietzsche. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, uh, it, it's uh, uh, an epic fantasy that's uh, epic fantasy in every sense of the word. I mean, it's filled with uh, magic, even has uh, dragons. But what I what I try to do is to uh, make it all as believable as possible. And uh, if you're the kind of fantasy reader who finds yourself mooning over this or that fantasy world, then there's a very good chance that my series is it, it is going to uh, uh, push your buttons. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, <laughs> that you were stingy with details a little bit, because something that I really enjoyed about the, the darkness that that comes before when I read it a few years ago was the more I slowly learned about the world, the, the more answers I wanted. And I, that made me want to keep reading is to find out, okay, what what is this group and who are these people and why are there their different religious factions and associated with the Tusk and these kind of things? 
Do you feel like that mystery has been good for the overall series to build up to this point where now you're revealing, you know, many things to loyal readers? Yeah, I mean, it's I think it's good from a, a storytelling perspective and good good from an artistic uh, perspective. Commercially, I, I'm not so sure. I I, I mean, uh, it's quite a ways to to make a reader wait to, to get to the goodies. Book six. <laughs> I mean, it's not as though there's nothing fantastic all the way leading up to it, but uh, the whole story ro- you know orbits around Golgotharoth, uh, the uh, the great evil, and uh, it's only as we close in on that evil that the deeper textures of the world. Um, are revealed to the reader. So I think it's part of the reason why the series is you know, so popular amongst those who, who've uh, stuck with it um, and yet difficult for people to get into on the outside. It, takes, it just takes a little bit of work to, to get into my world and then a little bit of patience to uh, see that world finally you know, revealed in all its dark glory. Yeah, I remember one thing uh, when I was reading, uh, I'd started with, uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, Acmean or Acmean. That's how I pronounce them, but my wife pronounces them differently. But I remember reading his point of view and and I kept kind of expecting it to shift to another point of view, Mm -hmm. but it kind of continued along with this one point of view for like a significant amount of time. And the, the first book is actually split into several I think think four different point of views that are extended. Uh, what made you mm-hmm. decide to approach it that way, where more I think the more standard fantasy style would be to shift to multiple point of views over the period of like 20, 30 pages, something like that. Yeah, I, I mean that first book I had a lot of challenges, uh, um, just simply because uh, so I already had this world. I mean, it was uh, a product of uh, several years of obsessive dungeon mastering. And uh, um, so I had this tremendous amount of detail. And, and you know, frankly, I'd given up on, uh, on the possibility of uh, being a writer. I mean, once I actually, you know, looked up the odds, I'm a, I'm a big, uh, big science guy, big statistics guy. And when I saw just how... You know, unlikely it is to be successful as a writer. I, I just gave up on it. But the thing is, is, I never gave up on writing. I mean, I just kept writing. I mean, um, even if I weren't published today, I'm sure I'd still be working on this uh, this bloody series. And the, that first book, the challenge was, because it was a hobby manuscript that I'd written for myself, the challenge was to somehow make it more accessible to uh, a first-time reader, and one of the big things I did was uh, basically bundle up all the perspectives into uh, um, sections in the book. So I tried to sort of make the the detail and the complexity of the world manageable by uh, adopting uh, sort of a a kind of uh, strict ordering uh, of who talks when and uh, what details get uh, revealed when. Okay. Yeah, that's an interesting. It's an interesting way to to look at it because I think it was once I got used to it, it felt like why don't more authors do this way? Because it felt more consistent to me. Like you're getting uh, a lot of point of view from one person for for such a long time, you you get comfortable in their skin, so to speak. I guess. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and then when you shift to the other another point of view, then you're sort of getting that whole different perspective that maybe you've been kind of 
wanting to know more about. Yeah. I think you're the first one I've read that does that style. So I just always thought that was really interesting that you, you approached it that way. I mean, when it comes to writing, there's so many things that you can do that uh, are, are just simply technical. You know, just the way you organize the word on the page as opposed to uh, what the words relate. Um, that'll help you, you know, uh, overcome, you know, uh, the problems of, uh, of complexity, right? You know, the, the classic info dump uh, um, problem that you find in, in genre fiction. You know, if you can, if you can actually sort of give one info dump to this character and one info dump to that character and another info dump to this character. I mean, I, I think you can get away with that quite a bit more <laughs> than you might otherwise. You mentioned dungeon mastering as playing a role in crafting that story. Could you just give us a peek into how uh, role-playing games helped articulate the narrative for this story? Yeah. I, I mean, uh, you know, getting into D and I was 14 years old, I think when um, I first bought uh, the the original uh, Dungeons and Dragons set. And I mean, this is, this is going back quite a ways now, geez. And it was, it was a revelation for me just simply because I was a huge, huge fantasy fan, huge, huge science fiction fan and role-playing games actually uh, allowed me to, uh, was well, a weird thing. I, I really was never a character, so it wasn't like it allowed me to uh, be a character in these stories. It, it allowed me to kind of be, uh, you know, the dark god in these stories, and that's the way. That's the way I looked at my uh, my D and D campaign as uh, basically a not so nice deity, <laughs> bringing uh, all of his friends through living hell, and. Uh, my obsession, uh, I was always obsessed with history, and I've always been uh, something of an info nut, led me to uh, uh, start developing the world at, you know, what are probably crazy levels of detail, you know, histories stacked on histories. And I just have these memories, even writing longhand, actually, you know, at two, three in the morning, you know, just literally spending 50, 60, 70 hours a week going to high school and doing this stuff when I came home, just <laughs> building this world for my characters to uh, travel in. And I don't know, when you're 14, you don't waste all that much time, you know, thinking about what you're doing so much as just simply doing it. And uh, the whole thing just sort of bloomed in a strange way. So by the time I was 17, I you know, would have no truck whatsoever with the, uh, the modules, as they called them, in uh, the D&D world. Just couldn't handle them. They just seemed uh, so uh, unrealistic, so unbelievable to me. <laughs> so every adventure we did was something that I'd written from the ground up and put tremendous amounts of uh, labor into. And uh, my players, uh, they appreciated it very much. Very much. My my old man, he uh, he, he did not approve. <laughs> to put it mildly, he thought I was wasting my bloody time. <laughs> the first thing I did when uh, I got my first copy of The Darkness That Comes Before is I drove to his place and uh, came into the kitchen and slapped the book on the table <laughs> and said, there you go. <laughs> it wasn't a waste of time after all. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that you said when you, know, you were 14 and you would work on these ideas a lot because when I was about 15, I used to work at Kmart and the shoe department. And I used to just sit in the back stock room and draw Dungeons and Dragons characters and plan my campaigns while I was at work. And so I can say this now, I can say this now because I don't work for Kmart anymore, but 
<laughs> Does anyone work for Kmart anymore? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I would just use co- company time to play my Dungeons and Dragons sessions. So. <laughs> yeah, I did. I worked for uh, I worked for my dad. My dad was uh, a farm manager and uh, also uh, worked for at a grocery store as well. And uh, I think I'm guilty of doing that <laughs> more than I probably should have. <laughs> we had Steven Erickson on the show as well, and uh, he 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 uh, is in the same vein where he articulated his story through um, role playing games for for yeah. the uh, Malazan series. Um, yeah. So you guys have that in common. But he doesn't game anymore. Do you still game, Scott? Or no, I, I just don't have time. Right? I mean, uh, I've been invited uh, 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 to join a couple groups uh, here here in town. I, um, a friend of mine who's a history professor. He's He's got a long-running D&D campaign. I think they've been at it for about 15 years. And um, they do it via Skype, as far as I know. I mean, uh, and uh, he's got his whole basement decked out with little cameras (laughs) so that everyone can play together from all four corners of the world, right, Uh, on uh, this sort of virtual landscape that that he's created. And uh, I was sorely tempted to uh, accept his uh, invitation, but... uh, uh, alas, I got a I got a kid and a, and a wife, and uh, I, I'm just I'm just an obsessive writer. I, I mean, uh, just too many other uh, pots on the stove. And what's a typical writing day kind of look like then for you, Scott? Um, well, I wake up and uh, I'm the I'm the bus driver, so I get everyone off to uh, school and everyone off to work, and around nine o'clock or so, I'll uh, cruise back. And you know what? It, it all depends on the project. I, I uh, when I say I'm obsessive, I mean I, I really am. I mean, like I uh, like uh, for some, I mean I dream about whatever it is that, that's uh, uh, dominating my imagination. I mean, uh, I literally dream about it. Basically, whatever the obsession de jour is, as soon as I get home, that's what I do. I blink, and it's time to pick everybody up, and that's what I do. And you know, have uh, family activities, what have you. And uh, when everyone, you know, finally starts getting sleepy, time to go to sleep. I uh, I'm right back at the computer, <laughs> and I write until you know I basically pass out. And that's basically been my mo for uh, everything I've done for about thirty years now. <laughs> Actually, longer, Christ, since I was fourteen, so thirty-five years. Yeah. So, would you say that that method of writing is super productive to just kind of like really dig into it just until you your face hits the keyboard? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, like I am, I'm, I'm tremendously uh, uh, productive, but I uh, just not organized at all, right? I mean. So I, I'm not sure I'd call it a method. I mean, uh, I, I'm more—I I more feel like I'm—I'm I'm sort of a, like a, a madman, kind of locked in into a set of habits, and uh, luckily uh, a career that that uh, uh, rewards me <laughs> for being an obsessive maniac. I, I mean, uh, yeah, it, it's hard to explain, I guess. I mean, there's uh, uh, apparently. What I suffer is is something that other people suffer as well. I uh, think if I were if I had a straight job, I, I think I genuinely would suffer because I have this this personality type. But uh, no, I'm just very fortunate <laughs> to be able to do something that actually enables me to get away with uh, being uh, 49 going on 15. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, do you actually do your writing from a computer that has no internet to, yes. to eliminate distractions and yes. whatnot? The way I do it, the way I, I, I try to build firewalls between uh, between my projects. I, you know, being obsessive is one thing, but when it comes to uh, actually, you know, meeting timetables and whatnot, you have to make sure that you uh, stay obsessed by the proper things. And, and so, I've found that uh, having different different computers for different projects enables me to do that. Right. So, I mean, if uh, if the fires are burning low on something that I need to do, I'll just grab my. Uh, so say if it's the novels, I'll grab my novel laptop and uh, I'll, I'll just head out the door and uh, go to a coffee shop or something like that and, and just uh, hang out with my characters uh, until, you know, whatever it is that uh, obsessed me in the first place is uh, rekindled. I don't know. It's worked. It's worked for me. I read your interview on Pat's Fancy Hot List uh, a while back and you... You said you felt your first trilogy included a lot of introspection and you wanted to rectify that for the second trilogy. Uh, how do you feel looking back on both trilogies now? Do you feel they complement each other with the introspection and the more they, they make a complete kind of two two series gel together very well? Yeah, I mean, rereading the, the Prince of Nothing after after having having written it, it just it just struck me that the, the balance just wasn't quite where I wanted it. And the and so I focused on basically trying to come up with a better balance for um, the introspection, the the uh, um, stream of consciousness, little rants that uh, my characters my characters go on, you know, trying to figure out this or that puzzle in the story. Um, I, I just wanted to find a better balance, and I mean, I feel like I have I have found it. I, I know some readers they uh, uh, miss you know those long extended you know drunken. Uh, lyrical uh, <laughs> exposures of this or that character's soul, uh, you know, that still goes on after the thousandfold thought. But uh, um, I just, you know, I think I found a better balance with, with the action. So it, it just feels leaner and meaner to me, <laughs> even though I know for, for a lot of people, they're, they're just not used to any introspection at all. And, and so it actually strikes them as, Every bit, every bit is alien as uh, the darkness that comes before. Is there one more book in the series planned? So yeah, so in the aspect emperor, uh, the unholy consult, I, I've already uh, written uh, the first draft. I'm uh, just putting uh, the finishing touches on uh, the final draft. I'll be submitting it probably before the end of summer, anyways. And uh, that ends the second trilogy. It's turned into a tetralogy, right? which is uh, the reason why the, the books have been delayed coming out and whatnot. It's just uh, the third book ended up turning into two big fat books, actually. And uh, that takes the story up to the point where I had uh, initially envisaged it when I uh, first came up with the, with the story idea when I was 17. So. Excellent. And what's what's the plan after the Unholy Consult? Are you going to go back to this story world? Uh, I, I've heard there's rumors of a, a third series possibly forthcoming. So the big story I came up with when I was 17, that story is dramatic conclusion. Uh, um, and it just offered uh, a sort of panoply of different alternatives, different directions I could take. And uh, I've been so intent on getting the, the story right, the original story right, that I actually haven't settled on. So I've written tens and tens of thousands of words you know, beyond <laughs> the unholy console. 
and uh, uh, um, exploring uh, different directions that that uh, yeah, can take the story once the unholy consult is uh, you know out on the shelves. But there is at least two more books to follow after the Aspect Emperor. But uh, the Aspect Emperor is concluded every bit as much as uh, uh, the Prince of Nothing was concluded. The break is every bit as, uh, uh, um, I think, decisive between the Aspect Emperor and the following two books as as uh, it is between Prince of Nothing and uh, the Aspect Emperor. Very cool. So two more books, at least two more books forthcoming yeah. after the next book, The Unholy Consult, finishes up the Aspect Emperor series. Yeah, yeah definitely. Uh-huh. And the story's not done with me, which is the important Excellent. Thing, given that I don't really have any control over it. <laughs> I wanted to, to ask the contractually obligated question that mm-hmm. we usually ask uh, about Grimdark, since we are a sort of Grimdark podcast. <laughs> You're on Adrian's prey rule, are you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you, you've, you've actually worked with our friends at Grimdark Magazine a few yeah, times. Yeah. You you also once mentioned on Mark Lawrence's blog about Grimdark is like a genre and like all genres it's a bag. And then you also mentioned about putting grandma in a bag with dog shit. Um <laughs> could you could you elaborate on this uh, grandma smeared in dog shit and how this is related related to <laughs> genres? I you ever have that experience, you know, where you, you, you bump into yourself uh, uh, later on in life and you, and you think, what an asshole. <laughs> that's a pretty asshole thing to say. What was it I said exactly again? Um, that's what Mark wanted. He was basically gathering a bunch of authors to express their opinions regarding it was a critique of Grimdark, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, like I just, for me, genres are, they're just bags. I mean, they're just, just basically a way to, to uh, handily carry a, a bunch of things that seem to have a lot in common, right? I mean, there's nothing essential about any genre. There, it's just an easy way to organize, you know, identifiable trends, identifiable tropes, you know, uh, identifiable authors, even. So the grandma, <laughs> if I remember correctly, the point was that you could put anything in a genre bag if you had enough interpretive juice i think i called it uh, mm. to uh, uh make it stick right i mean the thing to remember is you know when you talk about genre you're talking about organizing words organizing concepts organizing narratives and i mean those things are basically hazy patches in the fog i mean there's no clear hard edges there's no definitive answers one way or another so you literally could put grandma in the grim dark bag i mean you could make a case that grandma deserves to be in the grim dark bag and the point of that of course is just that when people start criticizing grim dark as being this or that what is it they're criticizing i i, I mean are they criticizing the bag? <laughs> I mean, obviously, it's a useful bag. Uh, people wouldn't be using it unless it actually was able to gather a bunch of things that had these you know, shared characteristics. So that can't be it. I mean, they're criticizing what's in the bag. So that brings us back to the question of interpretation, right? I mean, what's wrong with the kinds of things you find in, uh, in the grim dark bag? And... Uh, I think you can argue it one way or another. I mean, 
I just don't see any clear answers one way or another as to whether something in the grimdark bag is essentially good or essentially evil or old, stale. I just don't even know what that means in, in uh, the context of uh, fantasy fiction, especially. I mean, for me, the bottom line with Grimdark is that human beings are programmed to, you know, they used to call it in literary circles, they used to call it the fascination with the abomination, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, back uh, in our uh, ancestral habitats, you know, horrible things happened all the time. And people who didn't pay attention to horrible things typically ended up having a horrible end, coming to some sort of horrible end. So, you know, the subject matter of Grimdark, you know, it works as a genre. It, it works as an art form simply because human beings can't look away, right? I mean, these are things that uh, resonate with, you know, however million ancestors of ours that were killed <laughs> on, the ver on the voyage to becoming us, right? So I, I see Grimdark as being something very, very profound insofar as it grabs a hold of a powerful instinct in, in uh, humans. And as such, I see it as being very, very important for a writer or an artist who's interested in reaching out and exploring this or, or that uh, issue or problem simply because, you know, the profound nature of the grim and the dark puts them in contact with so many different people, right? I mean, just look at me. I'm, like, I'm a wanker. I'm, a, I'm an a intellectual egghead, uh, know-it-all critic or whatever. I'm the kind of guy everyone tunes out at, at, at parties filled with decent people. <laughs> but but uh, uh, I still think I have interesting things to say. I just don't want to say them to all my professor buddies, right? I mean, they already know what I'm going to say, <laughs> for one. <laughs> No, I mean, there's way too much agreement amongst them to begin with, right? I mean, uh, Grimdark actually allows uh, a wanker like me to uh, reach out and poke eyes, paint beautiful pictures, raise important questions for readers who just simply would not have any contact with the likes of me otherwise, right? Uh, unless, you know, they complimented me on my shirt. <laughs> which is an awesome shirt by the way for, for listeners who cannot see our skype feed is it is a skull surrounded by skulls on a field of fire and it's badass <laughs> yeah it's my super skull shirt <laughs> i need a skull shirt like that to wear every time i do the podcast no i need a i need i thought a, it was, was halfway grim <laughs> Yeah, it's very great. I need a shirt that's got like Pikachu skulls on it. <laughs> that's what I. How about like. dead Pokemon characters? Or... <laughs> yeah. What level are you on Pokemon Go, by the way, Scott? I'm sure you've got time. Um, to, no, to... <laughs> Pokemon Go is the end of the world, right? I mean, uh, um, people have no idea. People have no idea. It, you know, it's funny because you know I've been ranting about all these issues. You know, uh, um, the idea of. Uh, fantasy and epic fantasy in particular as being a uh, sort of cultural uh, canary in the coal mine, right? I've, for a long time now, <laughs> I've been arguing to people that, that fantasy is just going to keep growing and growing and growing and growing, and it's just going to keep spilling out, right, into more and more. It keeps uh, gobbling up 
more and more corners of, of our reality, right? So if you look at companies like uh, Magic Leap, for instance, which is just partnered with Industrial Light and Magic, basically augmented reality, <laughs> what they want to do, and they plan on doing this within five years, is selling people Star Wars themes. <laughs> so you can Star Warsify your whole reality. So everywhere you walk, you'll see droids walking, you'll see Boba Fett, right? I mean, uh, wherever, the, wherever the app can actually take a building and turn it into a Star Wars thing. I mean, it's uh, fantasy is about to leap out of the books, leap off of the screen and uh, start following us around like uh, annoying little droids, right? So uh, <laughs> it's going to be huge. Very important stuff. And uh, nobody... But nobody was interested in it back when uh, I first started ranting about it. And uh, now I'm just amazed that everywhere I turn, it's, uh, I, I, find, uh, I find people uh, not simply willing to listen, but actually eager to listen because they can feel how fast it's happening. Things are starting to happen very fast now, guys. <laughs> so 10 years from now, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll have the same talk. And uh, everyone is going to be, they're going to look at these days staring at flat screens, you know, that'll be like, you know, the phonograph. Well, you're more than welcome to come back on the show in 10 years. I'm sure we'll still be going strong <laughs> at that point. <laughs> okay, I'll just get you on the schedule right now. I guarantee you Grimdark will be. Grimdark will be bigger than, than it's ever been in 10 years' time. It's only going to grow. So speaking of the Grimdark bag, uh, you do have a story that's going to be in the forthcoming anthology, which just funded on Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. So speaking of the health of the Grimdark subgenre, uh, this anthology just raised $30,000. About 1,000 backers brought this anthology to life from Grimdark magazine. Evil is a matter of perspective. You're the banner name on this anthology, Scott. Um, you're going to be bringing a short story to this. It's an anthology of antagonists. Is it possible to give us maybe a sneak preview or a glimpse of the short story you'll be adding to this anthology? Um, oh, I, I never even thought about a, a sneak preview. I guess it, it, it might have been cool to, to read something. Uh, um, uh, the story, it's an Ooster Scrawl story. So for those who have read uh, uh, The Great Ordeal, Ooster Scrawl is uh, a character who, who has a small bit part in uh, in the larger series, but who I've thought about and written notes about quite often over uh, the last seven, eight years or so. And uh, I've taken this opportunity to flesh that out into a bona fide story of Ooster Scrawl. Ooster Scrawl is a very very different kind of human being. And his evil is a very strange kind of evil. I don't really want to reveal much more than that at this point. Well, I'm sure listeners will be excited to hear that, at least a sneak preview of the character that's that's forthcoming in that, in that anthology. And that drops in February, I believe, is when uh, supporters can look forward to that uh, title dropping in their mailboxes. But other than that, Unholy Consult, probably a year-ish at least away. Yeah, yeah, a year away. With Overlook and uh, Orbit kind of being on different pages and release schedules, so I mean, so it's odd. I've never been in this circumstance before. Um, the Great Ordeal actually hasn't come out in the UK yet. Uh, it's not scheduled for release until um, September 29th. So I'm not sure how that might impact things. The two of them have to do some kind of negotiation, I think, to to figure out on a common common uh, release date. So given where the book is from my end, there's there, there's no reason why it can't come out next year. Also, in our Facebook group, 
Grim Dark Fiction readers and writers. Uh, we actually did a read through of the darkness that comes before yeah. to oh. get uh, new readers acclimated uh, and on board yeah. and excited for our, our interview here. And we actually opened up the floor to questions yeah. to see if anybody had any questions for you. These are either new readers or experienced readers. So we have three questions that we brought uh, to the table here from our members at Grim Dark Fiction readers and writers on Facebook. Um, so the first question is, as someone who would like to read your fiction, but is somewhat intimidated by it, what are your suggestions on getting started? That's a good question. I mean, the first, the first thing, of course, is just simply not to let the differences, you know, fool you into hating it simply because it's different. I mean, I encounter so many people that uh, literally object to me just simply on the basis of, uh, of my, uh, my prose, right? I mean, it's a different kind of prose. It, it, it's a, a different approach to characterization, certainly. I have a, a literary background, so I'm bringing some literary tropes into the story. What I would argue is just simply to be open to that and to trust that the story is a genre story. I mean, I'm not trying to tear down epic fantasy. Far from it. I, I want to understand it from the inside, explore it from the inside out rather than uh, the outside in, which is too often the habit, I think, in, uh, in literary circles. So I would just say, you know, give it a chance. Trust that, you know, the people who do love the book love the book for a reason. Might not be your thing, Right? But until you get to the point where you can see past those initial differences you know, that are so important, first impressions are everything, but until you can actually get to that point where you can see past those initial differences, uh, um, you really won't be able to tell whether it's your thing or not. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. Excellent. And then the next question is, what was your goal when you set out to write the series, Riches or Fame? And uh, is that goal being accomplished? And has that goal changed as you've written the series? Um, well, when I started out writing the series, I had no goal. Uh, I mean, uh, I had these characters and I had this story and I had this world and I just simply had to write about it. I mean, um, yeah, no, I, I guess it's strange. I, I, I mean, uh, the only reason why I'm published right now is simply that when I was doing my philosophy PhD, one of my best buddies in my program was going back to New York, and his old uh, roommate was uh, a uh, agent at uh, what was then the Do Now Agency in New York, and uh, he was meeting up with his old roommate. So he just said, "Give me that uh, that stupid fantasy manuscript that you're always talking about," <laughs> and uh, I said, "Sure." Um, so I gave it to him, and uh, his old roommate read it, and within a year or so, I had all these three-book deals all over the world. So I still, I still can't get over it. Um, I certainly don't think I, I would have gotten this far writing the series if uh, I hadn't been published. But I really you know, began writing the series simply for the sake of writing the series. So I had no dreams of being rich and no dreams of being famous at least as far as the series were concerned, right? I mean, I was doing my philosophy degree, so of course I wanted to be a successful philosopher, whatever <laughs> whatever counts as that. That anymore. is. <laughs> um, but uh, it's just been a work of love for me right from the get-go, so an addiction. Very cool, very cool. And last question, a uh, member question from Grimdark Fiction readers and writers is, um, where does Theliopa's name come from? All of Kellis's other children have names that can be traced and influences in their book, but not that name. Where's that name come from, if you could share? Yeah. No, I, I, um, no, I picked up that name reading a, a, a Roman history. I can't remember uh, if it was reading Tacitus or 
Oh, I, I can't remember. I, I really can't. I, I mean, uh, no, the name the name is a blur of a real name. I just can't remember what the what the real name is. Um, it just struck me because I had the character in mind. I had the character uh, of Thalia in mind. I can't remember what my original name was for her, but I hated it. And uh, I often do this. I, I, you know, I can't think of the perfect name, so I'll just go with something. And then suddenly the perfect name will, will hit me out of nowhere, you know watching the credits in a, uh, a movie or something. And then uh, it's like, yes, that's it. And Theliopia, Theliopia became Theliopia after that, right? So <laughs> I have no clue. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about your thriller, Neuropath. Word is that your wife challenged you to write a thriller. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah. has your wife issued you any more writing challenges since then? Like, hey, write a romantic uh <laughs> Uh, no, no. I, I mean, she challenged me to clean up my office this morning. And she challenged me to shave. Um, which happened? <laughs> um, but no, I, I mean, she's a big James Patterson fan. She loves uh, psycho thrillers, and uh, uh, the reason she challenged me was that I actually read a uh, uh, James Patterson novel at the beach one summer with her, and uh, um, I think I said something, you know, uh, uh, predictably pompous, like. Uh, Oh, I could write shite like this in my sleep. <laughs> and so she just turned to me and uh, the way she always does when I say pompous shite, she, she says, uh, she said, uh, uh, prove it. <laughs> and so I did. So I don't know if I proved it or not. Certainly uh, uh, Neuropath on uh, a book, which I love, by the way, um, which has kind of had uh, a strange sort of academic afterlife, you know, being uh, written about in uh, different uh, critical philosophical essays and whatnot, um, was by no means a commercial success. <laughs> it certainly hasn't come close to approaching my fantasy sales. Did you find it difficult to shift from, you know, this world you've been working in for so long to write like a different genre and a different world and everything? You know, not really. I mean, it, it, the book actually it was very easy to write. The crazy thing about writing these long epic fantasy series I've come to realize is that you spend thousands and thousands of hours with your characters. And, I mean, your readers spend dozens of hours with these characters, right? And so your readers, I mean, they you know, they don't get tired of the characters. <laughs> but because you've been spending thousands of hours with them. I mean, you get tired of the characters, you get tired of the characters, you get tired of your prose, you get tired of your world, you get tired of all of it, you know, and you wake up one morning and it's just like, oh, how am I going to go on? You know, sometimes, you know, you'll see writers will just simply start inventing characters, I think, to freshen it up for themselves, forgetting that, you know, it's that original cast that the readers are interested in. And uh, I made a quite conscious decision in this series to stick with the original cast. But that doesn't mean I don't burn out on the characters. Neuropath was something I wrote in the midst of a big burnout following uh, the Thousand People Club. Any plans for any other thrillers in the future? Oh, I, I would love to. I, um, uh, the question is, is uh, finding a publisher who will pay me to write it in advance, right? Uh, <laughs> um, no, I've been, you know, I've kind of had uh, a, a sort of renewal of my love affair with with the fantasy world and uh with my fantasy characters it's hard to explain how surreal it is to find myself at this point right i mean to have this story that i you know thought through and came up with 35 years ago i mean i started writing 
immediately. <laughs> and I have never stopped writing in that 35 years. I've taken breaks because I've gotten tired with the project, of course, but I've always come circling back. And to find myself, you know, writing about Golgotha, it's just an amazing, an amazing thing to be able to follow through on a story uh, so big, so ambitious. You know, it's, I often find it quite hard to believe that uh, I've reached this point. So it's been a, a slog of slogs. A great ordeal. A great ordeal. <laughs> yeah. Except <laughs> you want to know, I grew up on a tobacco farm, right? I mean, I grew up working my ass off. And uh, this job is not a day that goes by where I, you know, don't feel uh, blessed for uh, um, being able to do what I do. I mean, it, it is not real work. And uh, its difficulties are of an entirely different, you know, uh, order than the difficulties you face if you're, you know, actually doing something materially productive <laughs> for society. So, <laughs> First world author problems. Right? Yeah, the first world author guilt, <laughs> sure. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> but uh, readers are experiencing the benefits of your creativity and your writing and your obsession and enjoying it. And we are glad to give away a copy of The Great Ordeal. So um, thanks again to the Overlook Press for hooking us up. But uh, we are going to do a giveaway. Basically, you can email us at grimdarkfiction at gmail.com with the subject line, The Great Ordeal. You can include your name and address in the body of the email. And the first person to email us after this episode's drop will get a physical copy of The Great Ordeal, courtesy of the Overlook Press. You must be 18 or over and North America only. Sorry, Antarctica, you cannot get in on this yeah. contest. But uh, special, fuck, special fuck thanks. Fuck you, Antarctica. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we need. It's the world's new scapegoat, uh, Antarctican. <laughs> Stupid-ass Antarcticans. They're fucking snow and fucking penguins and... Well, we're just about wrapped up, uh, Scott. It's been fantastic uh, touching base with you and uh, chatting today. Uh, I suppose before we go, maybe we've got a lot of writers who listen to the show. Could you maybe impart to us maybe the best wisdom writing advice that you could impart to us before you uh, go on today? Well, I mean, I have a I have a strange perspective, just simply how I found myself in the biz. I mean, uh, it is just such a hard biz to get into. And I, one thing I would say to to uh, people who who want to be writers is to uh, actually just stop and ask themselves how much they write. A lot of the seminars I give, a lot of people want to be writers, but they don't write. <laughs> And uh, um, I, I think it's a lot easier to get into this business if you're going to be writing anyways, uh, always writing. If your ideas are uh, more powerful than, than your will, you know, to do something productive, then throw yourself into it. I mean, odds are there's some reason why, you know, uh, this or that story or this or that character uh, has crawled into your skull and that someone else out there will get what it is you're trying to say, even if you don't get it yourself. That's, I think, the big sort of, you know, uh, high altitude advice I would give to people looking at writing. If you write all the time, then I think you have a decent shot at uh, becoming a writer of some description. But if you're not writing all the time, and it's an idea that you like, then maybe it's just simply the idea that you're uh, infatuated with. That advice, by the way, has got me kicked out of uh, uh, writing groups before, so it's not people <laughs> like to hear. <laughs> people don't like to hear, you have to write 
<laughs> Strangely what? enough, I, I, I've done lectures at uh, uh, Western University here, and I've polled you know classes, you know, 30, 40 people, asking first off, you know, uh, um, how many people want to be writers, and uh, all the arms go up, and then asking second off, how many people you know write, you know, every day or every other day, all the time, anyways, and uh, you know, maybe one or two hands go up. So I think a lot of people they read a lot. And so they get infatuated with the, the idea of writing for a living. It's just not something that, that uh, you can squeeze out of you. Or maybe you can, I don't know. How the hell would I know one way or the other? I just know that it's a tough business to get into. It's a tough business to stay in. And uh, generally, the people who end up um, succeeding in it are the people who would be writing regardless, whether or not they uh, you know, became J.K. Rowling or not. Good stuff. Great info. Writers write. <laughs> Except if you're in Antarctica. Yeah. Yourself, Antarctica. <laughs> well, if you're in Antarctica, you, 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 I mean, if you want to read, you, you better start writing. <laughs> yeah. You better start writing, uh, starting that Ar- Antarctican literary movement down there. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 mean, I mean, how many people speak Antarctican anyways, right? I mean, uh, probably should write in English, I guess. If you're an Antarctican, write in English. Hey, maybe once augmented reality picks up more, p- more people can move to Antarctica because then they can live on Star Wars. They can live on uh, t- Tatooine. Hey, you or, know what? Uh, actually, that might be a great investment opportunity, right? I mean, Antarctica is it's like a blank page, right? I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. you could actually put any sort of reality you want on Antarctica. Yeah, there you go. There you go. That's what we we learned go. something new. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Scott, your novels are so rich and dense and and so many things that could be discussed. Uh, There's multiple places that uh, fans of yours can go uh, to check you out online or to learn more. We've always got our Facebook group, Grimdark Fiction Readers and Writers, where we talk about Grimdark, we talk about you and Abercrombie and and everybody, and so people are more than welcome to drop by there. There's also the Second Apocalypse Forum at second-apocalypse.com. Also, there's uh, R. Scott Baker fans on Facebook and Twitter. I think it's at R. Scott Baker fans. And then there is a subreddit on reddit.com slash R slash Baker. And that is Baker with two K's. Um, So plenty of resources there. Social media wise, though, Scott, I suppose people can visit your website or they can drop by your Twitter, correct? Um, Yeah, my Twitter, I I really don't. I I mean, I, I just all I do is put obnoxious definitions uh, on my uh, Twitter account. Um, so I don't do anything Twitter-ish, I guess. I, 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 uh, you won't be able to get a hold of me through Twitter. I, don't, I, I mean, I just literally, I type these things in and I have no idea what happens to them. My, my Twitter experience is uh, minimal. <laughs> at best at the devil's chirp is the the twitter handle yeah, for folks yeah. to check uh, um what, what is the devil's chirp by the oh, way oh well i wanted to i wanted to do the devil's tweet right but that would be uh, taken so i i uh, i took uh, the devil's chirp instead and uh i'm a big fan of a- ambrose bierce and his uh devil's dictionary which is uh, uh from the early 20th century it's a collection of basically obnoxious definitions <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I just wanted to do a Twitter version of Ambrose Beers because I've always done this. I've always come up with uh, definitions. It's like a sort of a writer's exercise I do, you know. Um, it's just a way to sort of keep the uh, gears turning. And uh, I find that it's, it's great to uh, 
try to be as pithy as you possibly can. It's a great way to practice being pithy. So Devil's Chirp comes out of comes out of that. In terms of online interaction, my blog, Three Pound Brain, is the best place. It is a cognitive science. Uh, philosophy blog where I do discuss my uh, my fictional work and stuff like that, but uh, a lot of the stuff that you'll read on there and a lot of the um, uh, discussion that you'll encounter on Three Pound Brain is going to be uh, pretty technical, pretty uh, uh, out there philosophically. So I mean, these are exciting days. You know, we're starting to tease apart the basis of uh, uh, of consciousness itself, and uh, Three Pound Brain strives to be at the cutting edge uh, of that process. And that's rsbaker.wordpress.com for folks who want to check that out. And we will have all these links included in the show notes for folks to check out as well. Can we do a new game on the show called R. Scott Baker's Obnoxious Definitions? <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll name it after you and we'll ask guests, you know, hey, today we're going to do R. Scott Baker's Obnoxious Definitions. And then we're going to give them like a word like flamagio. And then they have to like <laughs> give us a definition. You didn't just say fl- fellatio on air, did you? No, I said flamagio. <laughs> oh, Okay. <laughs> Sound like it. <laughs> well, my, yeah, there you go. Lagio, uh, 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 Antarctican term for flagio. <laughs> there, there you go. <laughs> the Great Ordeal dropped July 12th in the U.S. Not available in the U.K. yet, so neener, neener, U.K. They always get books first anyway, so it's finally our turn to get something on the first anyway so the great ordeal is available now folks can uh, check that out on amazon scott it's been fantastic to get you on the line today Um, best of luck with the new book and the unholy consult you're more than welcome to drop by uh when when that releases you've got a permanent home here on the grim tidings podcast sir awesome thanks rob thank you for thank you guys both for uh for this uh this talk opportunity it's awesome you can find us online at facebook.com slash the grim tidings podcast or on Twitter, at GrimDarkFiction. Download the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean, and be sure to drop by our Facebook group, GrimDarkFiction Readers and Writers, for daily updates on all things Grimdark. On behalf of co-host Philip Overby and myself, Rob Matheny, thanks for listening to this episode of the Grim Tidings Podcast. We'll see you next time. Grim Tidings.